Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined as always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Great, Jerry. It's an honor and a privilege to be on this oh, podcast wow. today. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Buttering me up this uh, this week. <laughs> well, we are, as of this episode being released, Adam, we are on the other side. The July exam is wrapped up and we have our eyes set to the future. November exam cycle will be here before we know it. Yeah. Uh, congrats to those that are getting the preliminary pass and to those that aren't, uh, you know, take the time you need to process the results. There's a great community around you and people you could reach out to and, uh, you know, just keep, keep your head held high. Like we say at Biff, let's celebrate your effort that you put forth and try to figure out the way forward, because this is something that you absolutely can do. If you have the right program and the right people around you. Definitely. Well, we don't sleep here at Biff. We are going straight into November cycle preparations. This week's episode, we wanted to do a little uh, kind of grab bag question uh, topic that gets sent into us pretty frequently. Uh, and that is involving, you know, the choosing of the tax entity for your business. Uh, so it's something that gets tested on pretty often on the exam. And it gives a lot of uh, our students uh, some trouble because there's so many different variables involved. It can get really difficult choosing, you know, what is the best uh, tax entity filing status for your business. So we just wanted to kind of do a walkthrough uh, this week, Adam and I, uh, where we're just kind of go through the five big uh, business entities and kind of talk about the pros and cons and, you know, why you would set one up versus another or why you might switch from one to the next. Hey, you know, this is uh, my favorite topic to talk about, and it's an important one for the exam. We're going to keep things easy, easier here because it does go really, really into the details really fast with each of the different tax entities that Jerry and I will, will talk about today. But we're going to keep it just focused on, hey, what is this? When's it used? What's the good? What's the bad? And we'll note anything that's notable. And I think that's really going to be enough, Jerry, right? For the exam points. Yeah, for the exam, that's that's really what they keep it at. Because typically how we see it tested on is it'll say, you know, you have a client and the client has X, Y, Z conditions surrounding their business. You know, they have X amount of employees or they're worried about liability or they're worried about, you know, a certain number of shareholders and having shareholder ownership of the company. And based on two or three details that the question gives you, choose the best uh, business entity that fits the client's needs. So you don't need to go super deep as long as you know the kind of high level, most common tested areas uh, that we're going to go through today. And, you know, what we're going to talk about is really going to be enough to answer, I'd say, you know, 95% of these types of questions on the exam. Sounds good. Let's get to it. Yeah. So right into it. Let's start, you know, we're going to start from the easiest, most common and work our way up the pyramid. Uh, but right at the baseline, we have the sole proprietorship. Yeah, that's right. So sole proprietorship is easy. It's the easiest to create because it's just you. And it's the easiest to, to you know, if you wanted to dissolve the, that, uh, you don't have to have that business tied to you anymore. It's it's really simple and straightforward. 
Yeah. It's like, if you have an Etsy shop where you sell your crafts on Etsy, guess what? You're a sole proprietor or, you know, you have a, you do some uh, lawn mowing as a kid, you know, you go out and you, you knock on the neighbor's door and say, Hey, I'll mow your lawn for 20 bucks. Guess what? You just started a sole proprietorship. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's pretty simple and straightforward as far as how this tax entity, if you want to call it that, uh, flows through to your tax returns. It's directly to your tax returns. Uh, it's going to be on a Schedule C, and you're just going to deduct the things that you've used in the business to generate profit on your Schedule C. You're going to note your income that you had from that, that business or you, and it's as simple as that. The one little twist here with sole proprietorship is, let's say you do have that Etsy shop and you're you're not turning a profit. Uh, you're putting more money out into this I just, thing. I love crocheting, Adam. I just love crocheting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry to burst your bubble here, Jerry, but you have a timeline basically of three years where you need to turn a profit. Otherwise, what the IRS would see that as is that you just have a hobby. So it's not, they're not saying, Jerry, don't crochet. What they're saying is, Jerry, you can't deduct any of the costs of your crocheting goods under the guise of this business that you supposedly have because you haven't turned a profit. And the whole idea of having deductions for businesses is that you're investing into the business so that you can go out there into the world and generate a profit. So you have a timeline of three out of the last five years in most situations uh, where you need to have profits. Yeah. And it's, it's really set up for, I kind of think of the uh, mechanic, you know, someone who just likes tinkering on cars versus someone opening a garage. You know, if you just like tinkering on cars and you want to deduct those, uh, you know, parts and labor and things like that. Well, guess what? You need to actually make a profit in order to do so. Otherwise, you're just a guy or gal in a garage, you know, messing with your engine. Yeah, absolutely. And this is perfectly fine if you're the owner of this business that you have and you're getting the profit and you're taking the losses and uh, you're taking the deductions. I mean, this is this is the simplest and most straightforward way to go. Yep. And even in situations where you'd think, oh, this person needs a tax entity, it's it's not necessarily true. Uh, I was working with someone recently who just went back into the workforce after being out uh, to help her family out and to, to raise her children. And um, she's just went back to work this past year, and she's going to be doing some marketing and admin work, going to be getting income through a 1099. And that was one of her first questions for me was, I feel like I need to get an LLC. And one of the key questions that, that should be asked after that is, do you feel like you as an employee there could potentially be liable? Like, yeah. do you have any exposure for liability if someone were to come after the company? Would that flow through to you? Because the worst case scenario is that something goes wrong and through that business and through a, a lawsuit, they start coming after the employees and that flows through directly to your personal finances if you are a sole proprietor, because there's no separation between you and business. You are the business. Yeah. So that's where the, the, the problem starts to arise is, do we need an LLC here? And one of the first steps we take 
toward having that legal entity in place is for liability purposes and for protection purposes. Yeah, exactly. That is the biggest downfall of the sole proprietorship. And it's, you know, for most people, sole proprietorship works great their whole life. If you have a very low risk business, the Etsy shop, or, you know, maybe you're doing landscaping, you know, even landscaping can start to get a little risky when you start talking about, you know, damaging people's properties, driving the tractor into the garage or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be like chainsaw wielding landscaper yeah, maybe, maybe that... not landscape but, uh, let me let me change this like a, a mom and pop pizza store you know there's there you not go. there's Great. not too much risk with the mom and pop pizza store you know there's not too much that can go wrong sole proprietorship is fine yeah. but as soon as liability becomes an issue whenever you have a more high risk uh job or a, a high risk business where something can go wrong and you don't want them to come after your house or your property if you get sued that is the biggest main reason to set up an llc and for purposes of the exam that's what you're going to want to look for in questions is you know client is concerned about x liability or they just have an inherently high risk uh, type of business. Like maybe it's a, a doctor's practice who's getting malpractice lawsuits left and right. You know, yeah. that's someone who does not want a sole proprietorship anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another good example, someone I worked with in the past was a uh, writer and a speaker. And he wrote a lot of fiction and he wrote some nonfiction. And we were working with the CPA and the CPA just basically said, I don't really see, you know, are you going out there and, you know, slandering people? <laughs> right. <And the> guy's <laughs> like, no, I write fiction stories and I write this nonfiction uh, as, as well on, on some of the areas of my expertise. And the, the take from the CPA was, eh, if you want to, you could get an LLC in place, but you don't necessarily have to. And it was, it, it all came down to that core liability issue, but LLCs. Let's. I mean, since we brought that up, uh, let's let's take a step in that direction. So let's say you do need, or it would be wise to have that separation between you and your business, right? So that you have some protection there. Um, LLCs are one of the most common stops you'll see out there for small companies, limited liability companies. Is the uh, the acronym LLC. They have a fee that's attached to them, uh, not only initially, but there's some maintenance. I mean, it's nothing nothing huge. I looked it up for, and it's also state by state because you have Correct. to register your LLC with your state. Um, so I looked it up a little while ago for Massachusetts, my state. It's uh, five hundred dollars a year for an mm -hmm. LLC. So it is a fee, but you know, if you're a business turning a profit, five hundred dollars is kind of nothing for most businesses. Yeah, yeah, not very expensive. Uh, pretty straightforward and simple. And that's something too, is that you're putting this in place. Do we need to call in experts? Because that's going to take extra time, care and costs to do it right. And with LLCs, I'd say in, in a lot of cases, if it's just you, um, you'd, you'd be considered what the IRS calls a disregarded entity by having a single member LLC, meaning that there's no one else involved. It's just you uh, but you have this protection of the liability, right? You have that shield. But that offers some other possibilities too. Uh, let's say things are growing. Uh, you you have some other people that that want to come in and they they want to to help run the thing. You can have share classes there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can have different ownership structures so that people could own a percentage of the LLC. Um, there's a program in Connecticut where I live to get small businesses that are innovative seed money. And it's kind of like this angel investor space where people are coming in and exchange. It's like Shark Tank. You exchange for a portion of the LLC, they're going to give you a sum of money to, yeah. to really accelerate your growth. You can do that with an LLC. In fact, in this angel investor option in Connecticut, you must have the LLC because you need some tangible documented way to say, all right, angel, the angel investor uh, now owns 30% of this LLC. Can't do that with sole proprietor because there's only one owner. It's the sole proprietor. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of growth, you know, main reason to go from sole proprietor to LLC is that liability protection like we talked about. Now, business is continuing to grow. We've grown from a sole proprietorship to an LLC. Our next step beyond LLC kind of branches off into two directions and you kind of have your choices about where you want to go. And those two choices are either a partnership or an S corp. So let's start with partnership, uh, Adam, you know, why would someone go from an LLC to the next step and, and choose the partnership route? Sure. Um, yeah, you, you liability is your, your main issue, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And let's even rewind all the way back to sole proprietorship. I have this business idea. I can either go at this as a sole proprietor, but you know, my buddy Gus over here is is actively involved in developing this thing. Uh, we are gonna want other investors involved. We do need liability protection. Uh, where do we go? Like what's a good stop? And one course you can go down are just a partnership, right? Uh, and with a partnership, you need at least two people, as the name suggests. It is a partnership. Um, and within that, you have a, a couple of, of different options. Now, if you want to run the show, okay, you would be called a general partner. And the liability piece is actually not favorable there. Because if you are the general partner, you're making the key decisions about how things are run. You receive a salary from the partnership generally, and maybe some interest in the growth of the partnership, but you you are exposed on the liability front. But here's the thing. If you are a limited partner, um, someone else who's an investor, just think of it as an investor that comes in. Mm-hmm. They have protect, protection uh, of that liability. So it really depends on that front, what your personal role is and what, what it's going to be and the types of people that are going to be brought into the mix here. And one, I think one last key point, the CFP board in the past has had this one-off quick hit question about uh, basis in, in a partnership mm-hmm. or in a pass-through entity. Partnership is a pass-through entity. What that means is that the partnership doesn't pay the tax. It flows through to the different owners and it'll be on a K-1 uh, form that that they tells everyone just how much they have invested, how much gain or loss occurred, and kind of keeps tracks of, of the ownership percentages and so forth. Um, one of the questions around this is often what makes, you know, which of the following is not a part of a limited partner's basis? And it's around basis. Now, I don't want to even touch upon this deeply in our conversation here because it goes way, way, way deep really fast. And we probably would need like a five-part mini-series to really parse all of it out. But the answer there is um, you can bring in debts to the partnership and that becomes part of your basis. You can bring just cash. That becomes a part of your basis. You can bring property into the partnership. That becomes a part of your personal basis. But if there are debts of the partnership, that's of the partnership. It's not part of your basis. And that's that's the answer that they're looking for there. Yeah. Um, So to kind of put that in uh, some different words just to help it click is if I 
take out a personal loan of $50,000 from a bank mm-hmm. and I give mm-hmm. that $50,000 to the partnership to invest or, you know, buy products or what have you. My basis in that partnership is now $50,000. And mm-hmm. when that partnership pays me out profits, I don't have to pay any tax on those profits until I fully exhaust that $50,000 that I invested. Absolutely. Versus if the partnership itself, you know, let's say Jerry and Adam partners, we go to the bank and we as a partnership take out $50,000 loan from the bank and use it to buy products. And those products unfortunately fail and the partnership goes bankrupt. Well, guess what? The bank, if I'm a limited partner, like we talked about before, the bank can't come after me looking for that $50,000 because it's the partnerships $50,000. Yeah, perfectly put. Definitely. And that's it. And that's really the stuff you need to know there. Uh, I believe, am I getting this right, Jerry, that this stuff is covered a little bit in in the Series 7, just partnerships and limited in general? Uh, Yeah, it's been like, I don't know, like 15 years since I did the Series 7, something like that. So I'm I'm not 100%, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Same here. Same here. Um, it's, It's a... Yeah, it's a very hazy memory at this point. Yeah, so that's 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 really the need to know stuff there with with partnerships. I think we covered that well. And then the other thing is just, you know, if you're a general partner, it starts looking a little bit like a sole proprietorship. If you're a limited partner, it looks a little bit like a limited liability company. So you nice. kind of get the best and the worst of both worlds going for you depending on what type of partner you actually are. Yeah, let's move along. Let's continue the tax entity journey. Yeah, so now our company's really taking off. You know, we have employees. Uh, you know, maybe we have a, quite a few employees. Our company is getting more and more complex. Uh, we have other concerns, especially I feel when taxes really start to become a concern, S corps uh, come into play, but also the the shares of the company. You know, you want individuals to have ownership of the company beyond what is provided with a partnership because you know maybe we have some employees and they work really hard and we want to reward them we want to retain them as employees but we don't necessarily want to make them a partner but we want to find a way to reward them so now we're going to start looking at another way to structure our company and that's when the s corp starts coming in yeah and and this is something i feel is used quite a bit out there if you have an llc you can make an s corp election and um an easy way to think of of s corps are the s you know stands for would stand for small right it's a small corporation but it's also small in one of the key components that a, a corporation offers which is the the types of ownership interests that they have available. And ownership interests in a company, right, are going to be through stock and with with voting rights, right? Um, and in S Corp, you're only allowed to have one share, one, one share class of stock. However, that share class can have both voting and non-voting varieties. So that's a key characteristic about an S Corp. Where they're People, I feel like, overuse these. They pitch the S Corp as a way to really not pay taxes, <laughs> which is not true. It's not true. And by the way, this is our caveat that none of this is tax advice and to speak to your tax professional, yes. um, especially on this topic. I don't I don't want anything to do with, with someone saying, well, the Biff guys talked about S Corp saving taxes. 
Um, what one of the issues that happens out there is that people will set up S corps, and when you set that up, you have to take a reasonable salary that through the S corp that is paid through payroll. Reasonable salary is a term that has a lot of different interpretation out there. Some people feel like reasonable salary is $25,000 when they're they're bringing in $500,000. Um there's no specific formula to figure out what reasonable compensation means, but a good rule of thumb that some people use is it's 60% of the total income that's coming in for that individual, right? Um, if we're talking about a single person that that makes the S-Corp election. Another way, probably a more accurate way to do this, is to look into the region that the employee or the, the sole proprietor, not sole proprietor, but the, um, the self-employed person who has the S-Corp, where do they live? What's their profession? What are just what commonly are people paid in that field for that kind of work? And you use that as as your rough estimate. And, and that's going to be the reasonable compensation that's paid out. The tax benefit piece comes into it because on that payroll, you're paying FICA taxes, right? So you're paying uh, Social Security and you're paying Medicare taxes. And as we know for self-employed people, you're paying both sides of it because you're running your business, right? When you set your reasonable comp, what happens is any compensation that exceeds that can actually be retained by the S Corp rather than flow to you. And in it, there's tax savings. Because what you can do later down the line is you could have distributions from that pool of money at the S Corp, and it's going to flow through to that person and it's going to not have tax impact. (laughs) So there's a way to get money through a slightly different route. There's a little flexibility that you have there. But where people largely go wrong with the the S-Corp is that they set the reasonable comp way too low. It throws things off. And one of the biggest issues is that they set their their compensation so low that they're not paying into Social Security. And think about what that does for planning farther down the line. I mean, people don't like paying taxes, but that earned income that's paid out as W-2 income from the S-Corp, it's important. And I've seen people that uh, have taken their reasonable comp directly to that wage base limit for social security. And then they take the excess over that. Um, so are the savings enormous? No. And then, and honestly, clients are, might be disappointed when they hear, well, I have, I put this entity in place. Where are my tax savings? Mm-hmm. But there's a right way to do it. And it's, it offers that flexibility. Um, so. Yeah. so that's on the tax saving side. And then probably the other reason to set up an S-Corp is really to have that shareholder structure, Mm kind of like what I was talking about before, where you want to reward some employees, you want to retain those employees. So you want, maybe Mm -hmm. want to set up a a stock purchase plan for your company uh, or, you know, some form of, uh, you know, ownership of the company for those employees without making them partners in a partnership. So Mm -hmm. you start giving out shares and you're allowed to give out a maximum of 100 uh, different owners of shares for the company. So it could be family members, it could be key employees, it could be uh, angel investors or something like that, people who are buying into the company. You could mm-hmm. have 100 uh, separate owners of that company uh, in your S-Corp. 
There is one big exception to that though, Adam, and I have seen the CFP board test on this pretty extensively. I see it come up almost every single year is the big exception is the employee stock plan. The plan itself counts as the shareholder instead of each individual employee. Whoa. I never heard of that one. Yeah. So, so I could have 200 employees and give each of them shares uh, through the plan and the plan itself counts as the shareholder. Whoa. Now the downside with that though, is if those employees quit, they don't get to take those shares with them because then they would count as an individual shareholder. And if I'm over my 100 member limit, you know, it's I'm breaking the rules. I can't do that anymore. So if they quit the company, uh, they have to get a cash payout rather than have the stock paid out to them. Got it. But I do see it tested uh, on the exam. I, I hear uh, students tell me about it. That is the one big exception to the 100 member limit that the uh, the stock plan itself counts mm-hmm. as the shareholder. Yeah. Yeah. The one that I had heard about on that front too, Jerry, was when you have spouses that are both owners, they're actually counted as half owners. So If you have one spouse, one is a half owner, spouse two is a half owner. They add up to one owner. So they're both treated as one. Uh, But yeah, that hundred maximum of a hundred, one class of, of stock ownership, they have voting and non-voting subsets to it though. You know, this, this is a pass-through entity. So you're not, you're not really going to get taxed at the the level of the tax entity. There are some exceptions to that uh, at the state level, but it's, you know, it's, it's a choice to make. I think a lot of people that are self-employed look this way because you can use these in the right situations to generate tax savings and to have flexibility and to bring more people on and to have liability protection. Um, so you have a whole lot of benefits here. But in terms of complexity, this is one of the more complex types of business entities. And it's not something that you just, oh, this I, I read about this online. I think this is a good one for me. I think this this requires discussions with your financial planner, with your tax team, uh, just to make sure that it's the right fit and then to set it up properly. And one of the biggest things is to just get the books and the documentation in place up front and maintain that level of detailed books from year over year. Uh, that's something I see a lot of tax professionals um, really getting frustrated about is how messy some of the bookkeeping pieces get on S-Corps. Because there's a lot of documentation that needs to be in place. Um, and and yeah, that's that's how that that goes. Yeah. And, and that's why I kind of like the, th- the S-Corp partnership limited liability company. Those three are pretty much on the kind of the same level, you know, so proprietorship is like level zero, you know, it's what everyone gets. It's your starting line. And then LLC partnership S Corp. I would put those all at level one, you know, LLC, if you want the liability protection partnership, if you kind of want the best of both worlds for, you know, liability protection plus, um, you know, sole proprietorship uh, ease of access. And then mm-hmm. S Corp is when you're starting to look at some tax savings and then especially shareholders. So those three, are kind of the easy ones to, or not necessarily the easy, they're probably the most common ones for your small businesses to choose from when they're kind of graduating beyond the sole proprietorship. Yeah. But 
There's one final entity that we're going to talk about today that is, I kind of put it at the next level up. You know, when you when you start getting to C-Corp, you know, that's when you're really playing with the big boys. Um, you know, it's a much more complex decision to go into. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is. It's your big corporation, right? That's really what we're looking for. We're looking for liability protection. You get that. Uh, that's built in there. The big difference uh, between C Corp and let's say an S Corp is that you're not restricted by those those share classes. You can have multiple classes. In fact, that's one of the key drivers here is that we want to get a lot of investors involved. Mm-hmm. So the S Corp, that smaller corporation, isn't going to do the job because of that hundred person max, but also because it doesn't have the the shares. You're restricted to one on the S Corp. You can have, you know, a ton on the C Corp. Um, the shareholders, okay, they do not have the ability to deduct any of the corporation's losses because the corporation is taxed. The entity is taxed. This was one of the big deals when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed, was that the, the C-Corp rate, the corporation's rate of taxation, uh, it got moved down, got moved down to 21%. So the entity is taxed here. One of the key points to take away with C-Corps is not only is the entity taxed, but also shareholders are taxed on the dividend payouts, okay? So they could potentially be paying capital gains tax. It's one of these, the only tax entities where you have this double taxation effect that that happens. Yeah, And one of the the biggest downsides here, right, is that you have this very rare instance where you have doubly taxed at the entity level and then at the shareholder level. Yeah. And so that's a big disadvantage of C-Corp. And it's why uh, you might choose an S-Corp over a C-Corp on the exam is they could say your client has a business. They're deciding between an S-Corp and a C-Corp. Now they only have 50 employees, uh, and they're worried about uh, double taxation. Well, that is your key that, okay, I want an S-Corp instead of a C-Corp is because I don't want to have the possibility of getting double taxed. So that's why you wouldn't choose a C-Corp. Why would you want to set up a C-Corp, though? What what would make you choose a C-Corp over an S-Corp? Well, we're, we're going, you know, eventually we want to be... Uh... We want to be listed. Yeah, <laughs> right? it, it really does come down to those shareholders, you know, right? We, every, we wanna... every single common stock you see on the New York Stock Exchange is a C-Corp because if they are publicly traded like that, that means there's lots and lots of shareholders, certainly more than 100. And so the S-Corp is frankly just not an option anymore. That's really what it comes down to is, you know, the S-Corp has a lot of advantages over the C-Corp. But sometimes you just can't choose it. You have yeah. to set up a C-Corp when you get to a certain size company. Yeah. And one of the key reasons there is just the way that basis in a in a partnership or an LLC works. Can you imagine if that if K1s had to be produced for the number of investors in you name whatever major company is out there mm-hmm. for all their shareholders to track basis for each one of them individually, that doesn't happen with C-Corps. With C-Corps, shareholders can't deduct any of the losses at the corporation's level. They've invested into the into the company for the hopes of that it's going to appreciate or that it's going to share in some of the profits through dividend payouts. But there's, there's no record-keeping stuff that needs to happen 
as far as the percentage ownership that they have um, and and the profit or losses year over year for the individual partner. doesn't work that way. At the C-Corp, we don't have that. We have shareholders and they do not uh, and, and cannot deduct uh, any of the losses. So this is not a pass-through tax entity. So just so we can group these, uh, C-Corp taxed at the level of the tax entity, right? 21%. Then we have our pass-through entities, which means that the tax entity will not be taxed. It flows through. It passes through the tax treatment to the partners, right? Or to the shareholders. So we have our S-Corp, Partnership, LLC. Those are our pass-through entities. And then we have the lonely sole proprietor um, who's just hoping to turn profit in one out of the first three years. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. so let's just kind of uh, cap it all off and just do kind of just a one sentence breakdown for each of these five entities of why you would set it up. I would say for my one sentence for sole proprietorship, Adam, is it's easy, no fuss, no muss, you know, just you you get what you get and it's it's where most people start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, LLC is primarily liability protection, but you do have some flexibility, uh, pretty low administrative costs. Um, easy enough if you want it to dissolve and it's, it's a pass through entity, which means that with other pass through entities, you can actually, uh, if you have a bunch of K ones, you can take some of that passive income and deduct it against some of the, the passive gains that, that you've had. Yep. Now for partnership, I would say, uh, the big one is it comes down to general partner and limited partner, depending mm-hmm. on what it, you're looking at. If you're a general partner, it's looking more like a sole proprietorship. If you're a limited partner, it's looking more like an LLC. And uh, a big thing with the general partnership is uh, did you can deduct your losses uh, to the extent of your basis, which is a, a benefit of the partnership. You know, when it starts ma- turning a profit and paying out that money, uh, you don't start paying taxes on it until you have exhausted however much you put into the partnership. Yeah. And then um, S-Corps, you have those caps just on ownership. You have the cap on the share class on the stock side, you have the opportunity to save on some of the taxes that you would pay, uh, especially as someone that's self-employed owner. Um, You have some flexibility in there. It is also a pass-through entity. Uh, The downside record keeping is is a lot. You, You do need someone to help you set these up properly. You need to make sure your reasonable compensation is set up. You also probably need to pull in uh, a payroll company. Well, you do. I mean, you got to get the payroll company involved, uh, which adds sometimes for some people a, a layer of complexity that feels overwhelming. So, care, use care, use caution. Make sure that the S corp election is going to be checking the boxes for that owner in those questions and out there in real life. Yeah. And then finally, to cap it off, C corp is basically once you reach a certain size, you're kind of forced into being a C corp. If you want to raise funds from the public, if you want to have those shares out there, sell shares to raise money, um, you know, and be publicly traded on the on the stock exchange, you have to be a C corp. You know, there's no other option. So once you get to a certain size, um, you know, that is your that is your choice. I do want to clarify that though is just because a company is very very large, doesn't necessarily mean it's a C corp if it's not publicly traded, because you could have something like Fidelity which is an insanely rich company, uh, very large. They have tens and I think they probably even have hundreds of thousands of employees at this point, but 
they've never had to go to the stock market to raise money. Just because a company is very large doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a C-Corp. It's the fact that it's very large and it wants to be publicly traded. You have to have both of those really for it to, uh, to you know, really uh, jive together there. Yeah. And, then, and I mean, there are ways to convert. You, yes. you just, you know, the LLC to S-Corp, it's an election that you make through a tax form that says we are now operating as an S-Corp. You can transfer from an S-Corp to a C-Corp. I mean, there there's flexibility that you have there, but there could be some unintended consequences because different rules apply to these different entities. And there are some surprise taxes that could come about when you change from one to the other. Uh, accumulated earnings tax, for instance, uh, if you're if you're keeping too much of the earnings retained and there's not a good reason for it, uh, there's a pretty hefty penalty that could be paid, but there are others as well. There's the, what they call the sting tax. And there's all these other things that you don't need to think about as a CFP candidate and probably as a CFP professional, because once you get to that level of complexity, most are going to be working closely with a tax professional. <laughs> yeah. Adam and I were talking before we started recording the show that we think it's funny that the CFP board test on C-Corps <laughs> at all, because it's not like a CFP is going to be involved in that decision process to set up a C-Corp unless they're, you know, also an actuary or also a, uh, uh, you know, a CPA that's doing, you know, very high level uh, advising work. <laughs> they're out there. They, you know, and they might be listening in now, but they, from what we see, just the numbers are that I, I can't see many situations where people looking to run a financial planning firm or to be a, a personal financial planner are, are also going to be setting these things up, uh, the more complex tax entities uh, for, their, for their for their clients. And it's also just, it's good practice too. I mean, and just best practices to to have someone that whose who's only task in that relationship is to do this one thing and to do it well and to do it the way that the client wants it set up. So um, hopefully for for each of you, there's this is something you could listen back to as you get a little closer to the next exam cycle. Uh, last point, with something like this, the pro exam prep tip is basically what Jerry and I just did, which is we look for the similarities and then we focus on the outliers because it's often those outliers that are going to be the decision points, right? So what does one offer that the other one doesn't? What are the real big advantages of this one? What are the big disadvantages of this one? And it's kind of a features and benefits thing. It's it's one of our uh, favorite topics to cover in the Biff Review because it's about the features and benefits. And your job is to really just be able to interpret that question and see what features and benefits that client is looking for and match the needs to the entity and then you're there you got the points yeah so hopefully uh that helped you guys out if you get uh an entity question on your cfp exam you'll think back to this episode with adam and i um and yeah you know we try to keep it simple but as you guys can see we start going on the rabbit hole in a few different places definitely uh some deep water areas of this topic where you can kind of fall in over your head if you're not careful but you know take some time uh work on those basics and then start building it out from there and you'll realize that this topic is a lot easier than it looks and it's not as scary as it looks at first glance absolutely jerry good talk and thank you to the listeners that have been calling for this topic and a reminder to everyone else out there if you have topics that you're finding difficult or 
that are of interest to you, whether on the applied side and real world or the CFP exam space, uh, we'd love to hear from you and we'll make sure that we put an episode up. We've had some really good feedback lately. So thank you. Definitely send it in, you know, five or six of you, you know, wrote into us saying you wanted this topic. So we delivered, uh, if there's another topic that you want to hear about, definitely let us know. And uh, you can send that in uh, to review-content at bostonifi.com if you have uh, any suggestions for topics that you'd like us to cover. Well, with that, Adam, I will see you next week. And for all of our listeners who want more Biff Bites action, you can catch all of our old episodes at biffbites.com, uh, as well as on Spotify, Apple iTunes, uh, and uh, YouTube as well. Absolutely. Let's uh, best of luck is wish to the, those remaining for this cycle. And uh, always, always a fun time here on the podcast, Jerry. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll see you next week, Adam. Have a great right. one. Take care. Mm-hmm.